approximately 800 years before the birth of Jesus that God spoke to His people through the prophet Isaiah during a particularly difficult time during the people of Israel. And through Isaiah, God would condemn His people's disbelief, their misguided idolatry, their failings as a community of believers. Then God would say this, speaking specifically to a people who were walking in darkness. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, these words from Isaiah chapter 9 are fresh in our minds for a couple reasons. First of all, because we just read it as our responsive reading for this morning. And as we come to the end of our Christmas and Advent seasons, it's likely that many of us have heard this scripture possibly numerous times over the past few weeks. Certainly one of my favorite Christmas songs is that movement from Handel's Messiah where the great composer puts this uh, scripture to some of the most beautiful music that I feel has, has ever been written. But what we see in this prophecy from Isaiah is a promise, a promise about a Savior and a King and a promise about the end of a time of troubles. And Isaiah tells us that this promised Savior will have certain names and and subsequent qualities, wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And each of these names requires and deserves our careful study. So this morning, I thought it would be good for us to consider and to examine how Jesus is, in fact, a wonderful and our wonderful counselor. So to do that, we're going to look at a passage from the New Testament. We'll be considering actually a couple stories from the New Testament, but we're going to focus on one text that, that really exemplifies how Jesus' life and work on earth is played out in His assuming the role of a, of a wonderful counselor. And to do that, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 14, and then we'll uh, continue reading on into Hebrews chapter 5 as well. Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, "'You are my son. Today I have become your father.'" And in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading, the hearing, and the speaking of your holy and perfect word. So this is a rather long excerpt, and you may have noticed from the onset that neither the Greek word for wonderful nor the Greek word for counselor appear here in this excerpt. 
What is present, however, is a characteristic description of the qualities of a wonderful counselor that had been communicated by the prophet Isaiah and was believed on by the ancient Jewish communities and by the early Christian communities as well. So what we see is a description of Jesus as the great high priest. And as we look at this and a couple of the other passages this morning, we'll, we'll see that uh, we'll find that the name Wonderful Counselor that Isaiah talked about is being borne out in part by Jesus assuming the responsibilities of this great high priest. Of this point uh, in examining Hebrews 4.14, J.C. Ryle said that Christ, uh, Christ, the great high priest in heaven, is ever doing the work of a friend, a protector, a counselor, and an advocate on behalf of his redeemed people. Isaiah foretold a wonderful counselor, and Jesus has evidenced that through his actions as our great high priest. And, and how he does that is what we're going to consider this morning. So first, let's look at the language behind this name, uh, Wonderful Counselor. The name Wonderful Counselor in the original Hebrew text consists of two Hebrew words, Pele and Yahweh, Wonderful Counselor. And while there is some, uh, some scholarly discussion as to how these two words are supposed to relate to each other, uh, many scholars in Reformed circles and, and preachers accept that Pele Yahweh, again this Hebrew term, is a reference to a proper name, Wonderful Counselor. And it's also generally accepted that this proper name is, is meant to entail and to denote each of the qualities that's held within each of these two Hebrew words. So let's look at them individually very quickly. Uh, we see that throughout Old Testament scriptures, this word pele, again the word, for, uh, uh, the word for wonder or for wonderful, is used in relation to the wonder-inducing or the astonishing acts of God. There's a sentiment of the supernatural in this word, something that's beyond our natural understanding. Uh, the psalmist describes how the, the ancient people should, uh, should praise God's former wonders, meaning the astonishing supernatural things that God had accomplished on behalf of His people. Things that could only be acts of the divine are indeed wonderful acts. Likewise, we also see throughout, uh, throughout Scripture this Hebrew, uh, Hebrew word yawaitz or yawats in its various forms is used to describe a person uh, who provides uh, counsel, meaning wisdom or insight or guidance. And in other places, this word is used to describe the actual counsel that's received by a given leader, by someone who within his governing structure, usually an, an, an appointed official who would provide the type of counsel that this leader was looking for. So, for instance, David and Absalom uh, regarded the counsel provided to them by Ahithophel as being counsel inquired of God himself. And likewise, King Rehoboam requested counsel from the elders who had previously served under his father Solomon. And what we see is that in these and in many other circumstances, individuals recorded in Scripture sought the counsel from trusted advisors for the betterment of either for themselves or for the people over whom they had authority. Now, it's worth noting that these Old Testament counselors offered more than advice. Their counsel was assumed to be authoritative. It was, uh, it was considered to be sage wisdom. It was informed by experience, and it was relied on both for everyday decision-making and for more strategic decision-making as well. So it was far more uh, than, than just casual advice, but this type of counsel is also distinct from what we think of today when we think of the term counselors. Today, when we think of counselors or counseling, that phrase or that term is often lumped under the same umbrella as, as psychiatry or psychology or other mental health and wellness activities. 
It's not to suggest that all of those things should necessarily be lumped under the same umbrella, but oftentimes when people are talking about counseling in a modern sense, they're talking about uh, mental health and wellness. This is also not what we encounter in this text from Isaiah. So counsel or counselor for the teaching this morning is not casual advice, and it's also not primarily or solely concerned with mental health and wellness. Counsel instead is better understood as authoritative wisdom and guidance offered so that decisions that were being made would would result ultimately in the best possible outcome. So in that sense, counsel is concerned with the works and the actions of the people, often associated with their natural lives. Not, Not all the time, but often associated with their natural lives. And Isaiah puts these two words together, wonderful and counselor. One word is historically associated with the supernatural acts of God and the other with the natural experiences of the people. And Isaiah says that at some point a child will be born who he will be called as a name, Wonderful Counselor. And this child will encompass both of these Hebrew words and he will rule and he will govern with all the wonder of divinity and all the groundedness of sage counsel. And friends, of course, we know that this is indeed the very person of Jesus Christ. And the writer of the Hebrews here in this excerpt for this morning explains that Jesus' assumption of the role of high priest is evidence of his bridging between the divine and the human, meaning that which is wonderful and that which is knowable to humankind. The writer tells us that Jesus is the great high priest who has ascended into heaven, and he's a high priest who is able to empathize with our weaknesses, which makes him distinct from the other ideas of priesthood that we had seen previously in the Old Testament. And Jesus is able to do this because of two primary factors. First, he knows what it is to be human, and second, he knows the humans around him. He knows what it means to be human, and he knows the humans around him. First, when considering how Jesus knows what it's like to be human, the writer of Hebrews, in fact, exposits this point very clearly in the next uh, verse from chapter 5, where he writes that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And it's because Jesus knows what it was to suffer that the writer of Hebrews exhorts us to hold fast to our confession even today because our high priest is able to empathize with us in our suffering. In short, Jesus has been there. God himself has been there, and he knows what it's like to be human. Now, certainly the clearest example of Jesus living this out is that scene from the garden at Gethsemane where Jesus certainly did offer up prayers and petitions and cries asking for that cup to pass him by. You know, Christians often focus on the the bodily injury that Jesus suffered and endured up on the cross, that, that physical bodily experience, and deservingly so. It was horrific. It was disgusting. It was horrible. But What about that night in the garden as well? See, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was going to happen to his body that night in the garden at Gethsemane. He knew what was coming. So what about the anxiety and what about the fear and what about the doubt that plagued this man even before he ever appeared in front of the ruling authorities? 
What about that, that pressing temptation just to walk away and say, you know what, this is, all, this is all too much for me. I think I'm out. Jesus the man experienced all of those things too in addition to that bodily suffering. So I think the, re- the writer of Hebrews certainly had this occasion in mind, but I think there are also other times that inform and that let us know how Jesus knew what it was to be human and to experience human suffering. I remember, in fact, when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, um, after he got word that his friend had died, uh, he went to the town of Bethany to be with Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters. And uh, when he arrived there, there was much mourning and sorrow taking place. And then finally, when Jesus was brought to the place where Lazarus, uh, where Lazarus had been buried, do you remember what it was recorded that Jesus did when he arrived at that place? It's one of the shortest verses in the New Testament, John uh, 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. He cried. He showed up, and Jesus the man cried. Now, throughout uh, Christian history, uh, some people have tried to to make this occasion and to make this verse and to make this occurrence something more than what it really is. People have, have time and time again tried to say, look for some hidden or supernatural or some yet-to-be-revealed reason why Jesus would have wept, why God Himself would shed tears. So friends, this morning, let's be sure not to overthink this. Jesus wept because He was sad. His friend had died. His other friends around Him were crying. Jesus the man was sad, so He cried. He knew what it was like to be human. And Jesus is able to counsel us in and through our suffering because He too has experienced suffering and pain and loss. He's not asking us to endure anything that He Himself has not endured. It's as though God knows the value that that people, even us people today, put on personal experience. Certainly, in almost every facet of our modern lives, we want to encounter people with experience. We want an experienced auto mechanic. We certainly want an experienced doctor. I know that, uh, that we want people um, who are put in positions of authority over us, whether in our job or in our school or even here at church. We want people who are in positions of authority to have the right kind of experience. Perhaps you have uh, encountered a time in your life, in your work, or in your, in your schooling where someone who was in a position of authority over you maybe didn't have the level or the type of experience that was necessary for that position. And what's often our response when we encounter something like that, right? Who's this guy? <laughs> Who does he think he is? Who do you think you are? How, are? how are you going to tell me how to do my job when you don't have the right kind of experience? But when it comes to suffering and loss, those distinctly human experiences, we can't say to Jesus, who are you to tell me what suffering looks like? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I have going on in my life, as much as we might want to and as much as we may be tempted to say that to Him, it's just not true. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. So included with that, and as we we noted before, he, He knows what it's like to be human, but He also knows the humans around Him. Jesus, as wonderful counselor and high priest, made a point to get to know the people that He encountered, and this is something that we see throughout His life of ministry. We see God incarnate, Jesus fully embodying the divine and fully embodying the natural, taking time to get to know people. Remember the story from, uh, from Mark chapter 2 about Jesus' encounter with the man who had, been, uh, who had been paralyzed. Jesus was teaching in Capernaum, 
And he was teaching to a very large crowd. The crowd was so large, in fact, that many people could not get close to Jesus. And this paralyzed man's friends wanted on that day to get this man close to Jesus. And they were thinking that if he were to get close to Jesus, Jesus would heal him. Uh, but it was so crowded that instead of getting close to him through the, through the door of the house where Jesus was teaching, the, man, uh, the men, the friends, had to lower this paralyzed man through a, a hole in the roof of the house where Jesus was teaching. And upon seeing this remarkable act of faith, do you remember what Jesus said to the man once he, he got face to face with Jesus? Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this threw some of the Pharisees who were watching all of this unfold into a bit of a tizzy, but think about this event in light of what we read from Hebrews, wherein we have a high priest who provides mercy and grace in our time of need. See, Jesus knew that what this man actually needed was for his sins to be forgiven. Now, what he wanted and what his friends wanted for him was for his legs to be healed. But Jesus used this opportunity to counsel this man and to counsel the rest of the gathered people that ultimately what he needed, what was important, was for the man's sins to be forgiven. That is the actual priority. Now, the Pharisees who watched this were furious. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they asked. See, they viewed Jesus as a natural man. They viewed him as a charlatan. They could not even entertain the thought that this regular con artist was capable of doing something that was uniquely supernatural, like forgiving sins. Now, Jesus knew that they were holding this misperception as well. He knew this about them. So to correct their misperception, Jesus heals the man's physical ailment, saying, I want you to know that the Son of Man on earth has authority to forgive sins. So pick up your mat, get up, and go home. The paralyzed man went to Jesus that day wanting a natural solution to his distinctly natural problem. Likewise, the Pharisees were present that day wanting evidence that Jesus was a fraud and a hustler, and in both cases, Jesus knew what they wanted, and in both cases, Jesus would instead, by grace and mercy, provide them with what they actually needed. For the paralyzed man, he counseled him away from having his, his sole focus, his priority be on his physical elements, and pointed him toward his spiritual priority of sin. And for the Pharisees, Jesus would counsel them away from thinking things about him that were not true, and instead he would point the Pharisees toward thinking different things about Jesus, that when it comes to Jesus, they're encountering something much different than a natural charlatan. So do we see the blending here of the natural and the supernatural? Do we, do we see the blending of the wonder and the counsel being offered and embodied in one great high priest? Someone who assuredly knows uh, or who knows and who knew both what people want and what people need is indeed qualified to be a great high priest. Now think also briefly about Jesus' encounter with the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. We remember from John chapter 4 when Jesus was passing through Samaria, he has this encounter with a uh, woman of Samaria at a well, and that during the exchange he ends up asking her, uh, for a drink of water from the well. And she responds to Jesus by saying, who are you, a Jewish man, to ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? And as the exchange goes on, Jesus eventually says, uh, ask the woman to go and to uh, get her husband. And she says to Jesus, well, I don't have a husband. And remember what Jesus responded to her. She, he said, you're right saying that you have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the man that you're currently with is not your husband. And this, to say the least, shook this woman to her core. 
This man whom she never met before just revealed all that she had spent most of her adult life trying to conceal. Jesus had just seen through all of her defenses and and all of her experiences to the core of who she really and truly was. She was shaken. And this exchange concludes with this woman going back to the town and exclaiming to the other townspeople, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Can you imagine that? Jesus knew this woman, and he did so in two ways. First, by divine wisdom, he knew all the details of her life, specifically the things that, would t- that she would typically hide from others. But Jesus also knew that in order for this woman to play a role in his unfolding glory, and in order for her heart to be transformed, she was going to have to be pierced and to have her life called compassionately into account. He knew who she was, he knew what her experience had been, but he also knew that she was not defined by those experiences. Even more, Jesus knew that her transformed heart could be a catalyst to share his good news with other people. And thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God that in his providence and wisdom, he has chosen people like this woman at the well to share this good news, to transform the heart and turn them into the messengers about himself. Now, the qualities that we've looked at and that we've discussed are indeed qualities uh, that define Jesus as this great high priest that the writer of the Hebrews points us toward, and they are also indeed the acts and the qualities of a wonderful counselor prophesied by Isaiah. So this means also that as followers of Jesus, these are the qualities and the actions that Christians are to aspire to. Now, generally, uh, when we are talking about imitating Christ or emulating Jesus. We're not talking about having the ability to read minds or to know someone's full backstory upon the moment of meeting someone, thank goodness. However, the principle of getting to know somebody, of finding out about them, of learning about them, and of caring for them, well, this is consistent with Jesus' teaching. And it's also something that many Christians find very hard to do. It's hard sometimes to get to know the people around you. But I think that taking steps to get to know the humans around us just may be that vehicle through which the good news is shared even today. So to that point, I'll share a uh, a quick story with you. And this is a rather, I think it's a a well-known or a famous story, especially in seminary circles. So if you've heard this story before, uh, forgive me, uh, but I think it illustrates this point well. I think it illustrates how God values getting to know people pretty well. So the story goes like this. A group of uh, seminary students had signed up for a biblical counseling course that was being taught by a famously difficult professor. Now, biblical counseling, of course, and if our brother Brian were here, he'd be able to tell you all about it, but biblical counseling, of course, is the discipline of applying the truths that are found in Scripture uh, to people who are experiencing some kind of uh, difficulty or crisis in order to provide that kind of person, uh, that person with the kind of support that they need, uplift them in truth. It's a discipline that's been around for, uh, for years, and it's, and it's distinct from the other aspects of pastoral care. So this group of students, uh, they signed up for this class because they wanted to learn and acquire and gain the skills in biblical counseling so that they too could provide people with that kind of support. Now, these students knew the reputation of the professor that was going to be teaching this course. 
He was an expert in the field. He was renowned at his trade, and he was very demanding of his students. This was going to be a difficult course. And there was a lot of highly technical reading assignments, a lot of of theory and application to learn about, and there was also the expectation that the students would have an expert-level understanding of all of the scriptural references and cross-references that were going to be covered throughout the course. These students knew the course was going to be tough, but they had a passion for serving others, so they embarked on taking this course together. Now, in addition to being technically demanding, this professor was also well-known for, like, for liking to get an early start in the day. So this course that he taught was always taught first thing in the morning, 8 o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, and, friend, uh, and Friday. And on those days, the expectation was that the students would be there in their seats, books open, ready to engage with the previous session's reading assignments right at 8 o'clock. And this professor had a talent for being able to look out into the lecture hall and to identify that student who perhaps had not been able to spend as much time on the required reading that he or she might have wanted to spend. And of course, it would be that poor, unprepared soul that would receive the first barrage of rather difficult questions. So these students knew this. They committed themselves very early in the semester to doing whatever they needed to do to pass this course. So they made the decision to show up early on class days, just to make sure they were prepared. So Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, they would get to the seminary's main lecture hall at 7.30, just to make sure everything was was set and that they could get dialed in. And as the semester went on, their arrival time got earlier and earlier. Started at 7.30, then 7.15, 7 o'clock, 6.45. In fact, the students were arriving so early that in the same lecture hall at the same time on these class days was a cleaning crew that the seminary had hired to ensure that the classrooms were cleaned and prepared for the day's studies. Typically, the cleaning crew got to the building around 6.30 in the morning, and they would uh, clean and and do all the uh, things that they needed to do, and they were typically done by 7.50 in the morning in time for the 8 o'clock class to start. So, and so it would be that on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the cleaning crew would get to the lecture hall around 6.30, and soon thereafter, the counseling students would arrive with their eyes tired from the previous night's readings and their heads spinning, still trying to keep everything in order. The cleaning crew would be going about their business, and the students would, do the, would, would be trying to get this last bit of time uh, to, to get things in order in their minds, and it went on like this for a number of weeks until finally the day of the final exam arrived. And the anxiety level of the students was high. It was supposed to be a written exam, and they were going to be given a problem or a principle, and they were going to have to explain this problem or, or explain this principle without using their notes, without using a textbook. This was a closed book exam. So the students arrived even earlier than usual, cramming their minds with last-minute tidbits. The cleaning crew, too, was there on the final uh, exam day going about their business, taking care of their lecture hall. 7.50 in the morning came, the cleaning crew cleared out, and the professor came in. At 8 o'clock, he asked the students to clear their desks from all materials and only to have out the single writing implement. I feel the tension even in this room today, just the thought of having to do an exam. In their minds, the students were were trying to organize all of the technical methods and practices that they had learned about and to keep tabs on those scriptural references and cross-references. The stress level was high, but the students felt prepared. 
They had given hours and extra hours to the study of this content. They had spent more time on this course than all of their other courses combined. If ever there was a group of students who knew this stuff, it was them. So with all the booklets handed out, the professor calmly said that the students had 90 minutes. They may begin the exam. And one by one, the students opened the test booklets, anticipating a series of complicated questions. To their surprise, that day, they opened their books only to find one question. And in fact, it wasn't even really a question. It was a simple prompt that read like this. List the name of one of the people who cleans this classroom. That was it. List the name of one person that cleans this classroom. And as the story goes, everybody failed. The truth was the students had spent hours in the same room as these people, earnestly studying about what it means to care for other people in a biblical sense. Hours upon hours of sharing a space with them, hours of of learning all of the technical methodology they needed to learn not one of them thought to learn the name of the people with whom they had shared the space. Now, friends, in truth, I don't know if this is a true story or not. It's a famous story. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's a wild exaggeration or if it ever really happened, but I think that this story works as a parable for our understanding what God values and how we relate to the humans around us. All of the technical, learned, educated, and principled application of counseling theory and and doctrine and theology, these are all great and very important things, but they are all a lot more useful if we know the name of the person that we intend to share them with. Indeed, Jesus is a wonderful counselor who took time to know us, fully divine, fully human. Indeed, Jesus is a great high priest who has ascended into heaven and who empathizes with our weaknesses and suffering because his counsel is made perfect in his suffering. And if you can believe it or not, we are now two weeks in to 2022. And I can say assuredly that there are two things that are absolutely certain for this year ahead of us, 2022 ahead of us. The first thing that I know for certain is that each one of us in 2022 is going to need counsel. And the other thing that's absolutely true is that each one of us in 2022 is going to be counseled. The question I have for us this morning is, of whom are we going to seek our counsel? I think it's possible that for some of us, 2022, we're nine days in. Perhaps this year is not panning out the way we had thought or that we had intended 2022 to play out. Maybe, just maybe, this was the year where you thought to yourself, I'm not going to allow uh, this scourge of of a virus to order my life anymore, only to be sick with coronavirus on January 1st, 2022. Perhaps this year already is not playing out and you had expectations and you feel let down. In times like that, we need divine counsel so so that we can keep our priorities straight. But let's leave open the other side of that hat as well. Perhaps the first nine days of 2022 have been the greatest nine days of your life. Perhaps the last nine days you have seen so much abundance and so much blessing. If that's the case, 
would love to talk to you after the service. I want to hear all about it. I think we need to hear more stories like that these days. But if it is the case that the first nine days of 2022 have been nothing but abundant blessing, you also need counsel so that you know what you can do with the things that God has blessed you with. It doesn't matter where we fall on that spectrum. We're going to need counsel. So from whom are we going to seek that counsel? Can we make 2022 the year that we invite Jesus into our lives daily to see through all of our defenses, to see through all of our desires, and to provide us the counsel on the things that we really need? Now, you know as well as I that there's nothing special about the changing of the calendar year. There's nothing uh, supernatural that happens when 2021 becomes 2022. On the one hand, we know that. On the other hand, why not today? Why not, why not take this New Year's momentum and say, Jesus, I need your wonderful counsel every day of my life. Jesus, I welcome you as my guidepost and I'm ready to submit my life to you, you as my wonderful counselor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great high priest, wonderful counselor, we ask that you would guide us even as we embark on this new year. We humbly ask for your wisdom and counsel. We ask that we would learn more about you, who you are, and what you have accomplished by reading of your wonderful acts recorded in Scripture. And Lord, as we prepare to depart this place and as we encounter the the humans and the people you have placed around us, give us courage, Lord, to get to know them in a spirit of love and compassion so that in knowing us, they would get to know you better. Amen. Amen.